You said that self-realization is not selfish. Ego realization is selfish. In sales, we tend to initially think, I'm in it for myself. I'm in it for my company. I'm in it for me. And what you realize at some point is you're going to be a lot more successful if you put yourself in service to something beyond yourself, beyond your company. I'm very encouraged by AI. Actually. Some people are worried about people using AI to cheat. What you'd rather say is, no, start with AI. Go ahead, it's a tool, it's like a calculator. I would say that climate change right now is a more serious concern than AI personally, and we seem to be ignoring that pretty well. And there's a lot of stuff that computers are better at doing at people, but there's a whole raft of things that people are better than doing computers. Every human being, as well as every mammal, experiences nurturing as their first experience of the world. It is unconditional love that you're receiving. We call it love, you can go whatever you want. It makes you feel wonderful, and it's a gift. The key idea of the staircase is, reality is constructed in levels, which is really a weird idea. But, but everywhere you look, you see these distinct levels. You can't live a life without a story. You have to have a story. And if we don't get better analytics of our narrative, we're not gonna understand ourselves. I think at some point, you have to step back and say, okay, what's my story? Today, I have a pleasure of recording a podcast with Jeffrey Moore, who is very well known in the tech world for his book, Crossing the Chasm, and his frameworks around adoption lifecycle of new technologies that have been pivotal uh, in helping businesses to transition from early adopters to mainstream customers. Recently, Jeff published another book, The Infinite Staircase. Here, Jeff provides the framework of our current understanding of life as it is end to end. And honestly, between talking business and life philosophies, I'll pick a letter, no questions asked. So now I invite you to join me and Jeff in a thought-provoking conversation about society, social norms, value, and morale. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Jeff, there are two camps on AI. Those who think that AI could pose an existential threat and those who are less concerned. Uh, what camp do you belong to? Well, it's interesting. I think there's cases for both camps, but I'm pretty much in the second one. I think, I think the things we have to gain from AI are enormous. I think that we don't know quite of the risks yet. Just as we learned with social media, that social media had dimensions that we didn't anticipate and that we're now struggling to to uh, regulate. I think we'll have the same problems with AI, but again, with social media, I think there's so much been gained by it. I think the gains outweigh the losses. Uh, what would you say the, for those people who are more concerned about the existential threat? Well, I mean, we, we live in a Darwinistic world. There's always been existential threats, right? Saber-toothed tigers were an existential threat. I mean, evolution requires us to respond to existential threats. I would say that climate change right now is a more serious concern than AI personally, and we seem to be ignoring that pretty well. So, you know, I, I think the human race tends to wait until it gets its back up against the wall before it actually confronts things like this. Um, in the meantime, I think people have other agendas and existential threat can play into their narratives in other ways. Um, it, it, you know, and so I think that I think a lot of that may have to do with that as well. Everyone is always saying that global warming is one of the biggest problems for human civilization these days. Um, I read this report that 
um, say that you know CO two is the, the the sort of like the biggest brings the biggest impact on on the nature, right? And I I read in that study that one one volcano eruption can produce so much CO two that it's gonna it, it's more than we produce with all our plants and factories for the entire like hundred years or something. Uh, have you heard something like, like that? And I assume if it's a reputable report, it, it, it is. I don't think it's an excuse <laughs> because, you know, I mean, I, I just think it's, but I think the challenge with global warming is it's so hard to figure out where the leverage is to control it. Uh, because, it, you know, it, the, as you point out, any exception condition can throw the balance off. It just takes one or a few rogue behaviors to potentially do that. I don't think the war in Ukraine is helping the global climate at all either, right? And, and so there's, yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot of forces there. I do think the inability to have a responsible dialogue is is what concerns me. And and I, I know that, that Europe is absolutely bewildered by the American response to global warming, because in Europe, it's a very clearly they're, they're trying to have a very principled dialogue. I actually think the other nations are, too. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm I, at least with AI, it's a technology. And with AI, I think that there's, there's there are some very, very practical, leverageable things we can do right now, which I think will make a big difference to the quality of life and productivity of people. So I'm very encouraged by AI, actually. In your opinion, what's the perfect uh, symbiotic relationship between human and AI? Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you know a guy named Sal Khan, but Sal Khan has something called the Khan Academy. And he's just devoted himself to using uh, digital learning as a vehicle for good. And, and, and he, this was way before AI. So he, was, he, he has all these wonderful lectures that explain math and science and whatever. And people have really taken to the whole thing. But he had a recent conversation about AI in which he was saying, look, prior to the pandemic, a teacher could expect to have maybe three grade levels in her classroom or his classroom. You know, some people would be a year behind. Most would be kind of on year. Some would be a year ahead. But with the pandemic, it got up to six grade levels. And you, you, you cannot possibly do that. But with the new chat GPT technology, you can create tutors across that. And so his point of view is, look, some people are worried about people using AI to cheat. What you'd rather say is, no, start with AI. Go ahead. It's a tool. It's like a calculator. But then, but then add your own self to it. And I think that's the right way to think about it. I, don't think, I think there are tasks that people don't do well that AI should just do, just like automation. You know, we don't have policemen doing stoplights anymore. We actually have program stoplights doing stoplights because they're better at doing it than people. And there's a lot of stuff that computers are better at doing than people, but there's a whole raft of things that people are better than doing computers. Right. So in this example, you use AI as a, as a tool, uh, but uh, what if we're going to consider AI as a certain, like an organism? I wouldn't say the organisms, but something that has, I wouldn't say a conscious, but something that um, that's, that's is independent from a human that we need to, uh, not just necessarily rely on, but also to respect, collaborate with, right? Uh, one of the, um, one of the key questions that you've, you know, brought up in, in one of your recent books is about how we as humans supposed to align ourselves with the non-human universe, right? And I kind of consider AI to be a non-human universe. So, um, how do we align 
Jeff? So I, I, I think it's really important. I, I, I've been doing some more thinking about this. I think we need to distinguish things that, that can simulate consciousness, which clearly AI can do. AI can look increasingly like a reasoning uh, individual. And what I would call sentience, which is emotionally motivated, hormonally uh, uh, attached. As human beings, we're mammals, and, and we do a lot of our communication based on hormonal, emotional connection. AI will not have that. AI is not biological. And, and so it, it, it's, it, it's, it's electrical, but it's not chemical. And we're chemical and electrical. We're both. So I think the notion of negotiating with an AI and whatever, I think that's a mistaken notion. The notion that AI would have a will, I think that's a mistaken notion. The notion that AI could be programmed to be destructive is not a, is not a mistaken notion. And you can imagine a self-learning algorithm which could become very destructive. Um, so I don't, I, I'm not saying that, the, but I don't think we have to worry about a sentient AI. I don't, I don't think we have to worry about the rights of an AI organ. I don't think there will be an AI organism. I think I think there will be entities, but I don't think they'll be organic. So um, I, I, then in, in the next, like, I don't know, 20, 30 years, uh, the only AI we would say are kind of robots, right? That are like a delivery robots or some, you know, some some helpers, right? Like, well, yeah, but they're going to be amazing robots. I mean, I mean, right. the, the thing that I think that we all get astounded by, I mean, I think, I don't know if you've had the chat GPT experience, but I assume you have. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, whoa, I, I didn't think that was going to be possible. I didn't think self-driving cars was going to be possible. I mean, so, so we know that, the, that there's boundaries here which are going to be transgressed that we have not anticipated, but... It, that's life. I mean, it's like, you know, that's just the way it is. Yesterday I saw this video of um, this small delivery robots, uh, but they were getting robbed by people. And it was so sad to watch them getting robbed. And they were so defenseless, you know, in, in the way they, they operate, right? So I have a question for you. Should we as a society transform to build a bilateral relationship with robots, AI, and sort of like non-human universe? I, I don't think so. I, I, I do think that human, look, I am very optimistic about human beings at their best, and I'm also pretty pessimistic about human beings at their worst. And, and I, think, I think that the human, the human bell curve is sufficiently, sufficiently broad that we don't need to broaden it by adding non-human entity. Well, let me be careful. I think other organ I think other mammals, I think other animals, I think respect for, for life and that respect is part of the I think that's part of the human equation. But I don't think inorganic uh I think that's I, it's not that you couldn't write a good story about it. You could write a good and people have written good stories about it and good movies. But I don't think that's where we should be focusing our attention. Right. So the little delivery robots will be safe eventually, right? Well, <laughs> they I don't know if they'll be safe, but, the, but, but obviously they'll figure out a way to make an unrobable robot. I mean, people yeah. are clever. And, 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 you know, I spend a bunch of time, I think, as you know, in the tech sector. So mm -hmm. one huge part of tech is cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. So cybersecurity is an ongoing collaborative R&D between researchers and criminals. Yeah. And, and, and you're, you're essentially, it's R&D under adversarial conditions. Well, it's, it's amazingly 
It's amazingly productive in terms of inventing new technology. It's kind of a waste of time in terms of the human spirit. But, right. but, but so I think there's a version of that that would happen. I've, um, I've spoken with uh, Neil Patel, his um, digital marketing guru, and uh, he's, he's, he had an interesting thought about breaking your own business, sort of like that. Uh, it's very similar to what you just said with regards to cybersecurity, right? So you need to break things to create them, right? So uh, if you are the first one to break your business, then you're going to be fine. So the external threat, you, you're going to survive the external threat. The same goes with sort of like cybersecurity, et cetera, right? So uh, you are breaking uh, the the firewalls, or you're breaking the security for the others not to break them, right? And to to make the the better sort of system of it. I wanted to talk about your last book, The Infinite Staircase. I have the hard copy, um, and I I was wondering how how many years have you had, or have you been kind of kind of have thoughts battling uh, on, on the questions that you brought up uh, because this is the book that is totally different from everything that you wrote before it, right? And a lot of the philosophical matters that you brought up in the book, it's not something that you can start writing about in the, within a year or two years, right? It's something that you live by for a long time and sort of like the, the certain environment that you develop in, right? So can you talk to me about how long you've been living with this idea, who, who you got inspired from, but mainly, um, why did you decide that, okay, it's time for me to actually sit down and, and finish it and sort of like encompass that into, yeah. into this work? Yeah, well, okay, so how long has it been? I mean, arguably you could say ever since you joined the planet, but I would say that the, the, the game changer for me was somewhere about maybe 20 years ago, I don't know, I could, when you get to a certain age, your sense of time right. goes a little bit. But anyway, I started reading in complexity. So it was about chaos, and then it was about self-organizing systems. The Santa Fe Institute had a bunch of stuff on it. And it was the first time I, I, I was offered a mental framework where you could see how complexity could emerge as opposed to having a, a, an intelligent designer. And it sort of emerged, it was a labor of love. It's, it was something I really enjoyed doing. And, um, but as you say, I really didn't know how to market it. I, I, I'm not even sure I want, I didn't know what to do with it. So um, uh, I kind of just put it out there and uh, people have been very generous about responding to it. And, and so I've got now, I have a LinkedIn blog that's mostly about business, but periodically I will put in one of these infinite staircase uh, essays. And, I'm sure some people go, oh, there he goes again. <laughs> but other ones go, okay, okay. And I get response. I, it's, it's, it's fun. I, I enjoy it, actually. I had an option. So, you know, before the interview preparing for, for our conversation, I obviously had an option to dig more into uh, the work, the massive work that you've done in the business space with all your business books, the, the bestsellers, et cetera. But then also I could go into the other route, the, the, the infinite staircase route. And somehow... The infinite staircase was so appealing to me that I was like, okay, I wanted to go in there. So that's why I wanted our conversation to, to be dedicated a lot, uh, not necessarily about the book, but rather the concept, the, the, the philosophical aspects of, of, of the things that you brought up in the book. So for, for everyone who's listening to this, for, for them to have context in the next 30 minutes about what we talk, right? Um, so the infinite staircase book, uh, what is the infinite staircase yeah. in your own words? 
So, so the book has actually got, it's, it's divided into two parts. The first two thirds is an attempt to describe how does reality actually work? And then the last third is, if that's how reality works, how should we act? How should we behave? So in the first book, I, the first two thirds, I would call a work of metaphysics, like what's going on? And the last a work of ethics, okay, how should we act? So in the first two thirds, the key idea of the staircase is reality is constructed in levels, which is really a weird idea. But, but everywhere you look, you see these distinct levels. So you say, okay, I, I see a level of physics. Okay, the atoms. Okay, great. Then you see a level of chemistry on top of that. It's not the same as physics, but it, but it obviously depends on physics. It emer we say it emerges from physics. And then biology astoundingly emerges from chemistry. And, and that, by the way, that's a very, that's only in the last hundred years we, we, we knew that. Before that, there was a vital force that was mystical. Right. It was not that. Right. She said, whoa, okay. That, and, and this is where these self-organizing systems come. So I did this staircase and I said, look, I'm going to identify 11 stairs. I don't, mm -hmm. know, I, I don't know if that's the right number, I, but right. I do know that they're in the right order. At least that was my claim. Mm -hmm. So the stairs were, the bottom three were essentially the physical world. So it was physics, chemistry and biology. That would get mm -hmm. you to two billion years ago, we have a planet full of bacteria and nothing else. But then the next thing was they, bacteria started hanging out with each other. Right. And that created a, uh, a what I call the metaphysics of Darwinism or evolution, which was desire, which ultimately gave rise to consciousness, which gave rise to values, particularly in mammals, and then mm -hmm. gave rise to culture as, as social mammals teach each other stuff. Mm -hmm. and the thing was interesting about culture is that strategic ideas in culture get communicated in a way that's parallel to the way genes communicate strategies between generations. So mm -hmm. strategies for living became kind of the core idea of that middle thing. And you start with spider strategies for living, which are very unconscious, and then you develop conscious strategies for living, and then you develop collaborative strategies around values. Mm -hmm. And particularly mm -hmm. if you've been nurtured by a mother, you have a set of values that all mammals right. have because we all we're nurtured or we wouldn't be here. And then culture is actually when social animals teach each other, they learn from each other. So you don't mm -hmm. pass along stuff just biologically. You can actually transcend generations with cultural stuff. So that was the middle part. And then language was the other game changer. And so when language came in, then I did language, narratives, analytics, and theory. And, and mm -hmm. that was just an attempt to build. I I'm an English professor by training. And so narratives is like, to me, the, if I had to pick one stair out of the 11, it would be narratives Narrative. because they're totally motivational and they're explanatory mm -hmm. and they're, they're whatever. So a lot, a lot on narrative. And then the analytics critique the narratives, both mathematical analytics, but also mm -hmm. natural language analytics and mm -hmm. then theory at the top. So at the end of that thing, I thought, well, OK, this is a reasonably coherent view. But the last thing it question it begged was, well, wait a minute. Traditionally, ethics was something that came from God. I mean, it came from divine authorization. Right. What's going to authorize ethics in this new world? And so the last third was about saying, what if ethics come from the bottom up instead of from the top down? What mm -hmm. if they emerge out of our mammalian roots? What if they? What if that's how how it works? And the, how would how would you figure that out? And so there's a bunch of chapters about you know sorting that out, and then and then the last chapter is called being mortal, which is okay if immortality plays a role in the religious view, what right. mortality probably plays a similar role in the secular view. And so there was a chapter about that. I wanted us today to talk about the part of the stairs when we have 
values, culture, and ethics, that kind of part, uh, because that obviously going to resonate with a lot of listeners, but also it fits into, um, you know, into the late motive of our podcast, which is growth beyond sales, right? So yes, I wanted yes. to introduce people to more growth. So um, I wanted to have this kind of terminology straight. So when we talk about social values or social collaboration or society in general. So do we mean the, the, the values that, that you said uh, are set up in us when we are brought up, when sort of like there is like a nurturing process, or we are talking about the other part of, of when it's already a cultural predomination? So I think it starts with the first and becomes the second as we grow older. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the, the very beginning of values is nurturing. So, we, look, you and I could not possibly be here if we were not nurtured for the first right. several years of our life. So every, every human being, as well as every mammal, experiences nurturing as their first experience of the world. It is unconditional love that you're receiving. We call it love. You can call it whatever you want. But it's, it's to, you're totally dependent on it. It makes you feel wonderful. And, and it's a gift. So, so I, think, I think if you think about, you know, thinking... And so what it makes you want to do is give back. And Mm -hmm. if I had to think about one thing about going beyond sales, in sales, we tend to initially think, I'm in it for myself, I'm in it for my company, I'm in it for me. And what you realize at some point is you're going to be a lot more successful if you put yourself in service to something beyond yourself beyond your company. Beyond. And, 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 and I think that I think value that, that second set of values where you try to give back to your parents, give back to your siblings, give back to your team, your, your community. That's the beginning of, of, of and that leads to culture, because then culture mm-hmm. is, well, how can we institutionalize some of that giving back mm-hmm. and, and contributing to, 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 to things? And then eventually the culture itself starts making demands. And, th- and in adolescence, that's very disturbing because you have you find yourself being at odds with your culture. So every adolescent rebels against something. Right. It's like, uh-huh. I hate these. Things. Is that a terrible idea? Uh, and, and so there's a bunch of tension and stress. But I think it's part of the it's part of what forms the personality. Now, when we think about this um, fundamental social values that we were born with, that we were brought up with. Why I have the feeling that some of those values have changed or transformed in in the last 30, 40 years, a result of, you know, the globalization, the Internet. So when you look back at the entire history of of all this civilization, so do you think that it's premature to say that we changed our social values or transformed them um, or that actually happened because of the velocity of changes that we are experiencing right now? Well, it's interesting. So my research is a, in, in English literature was actually in medieval and Renaissance literature. So mm-hmm. it, it goes back at least a thousand years. Um, I don't think they've changed. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I personally feel that the, the things that we're dealing with now, in fact, in some ways, they're more trivial than what it's, it's very interesting what's happened to contemporary, at least contemporary American life in a society that basically enjoys a lot of privileges and mm-hmm. rule of law and all this wonderful media that we're on right now. I, I don't I mean, I think it's a I think we've been dealt a much easier hand than people right. 100 years ago. Or I mean, look at life expectancy I mean, life expectancy in the Renaissance was about 35. <laughs> How old are you, by the way? 
Uh, I'm 30, so okay, I would be probably yeah, getting it done. I would get it, yeah. I had just a few more years to create something, and I'm done. You know? And, and I, I've been dead for so long, I can't even remember. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm of the thing of, no, I, I feel like we need to just kind of step up and be a little bit more real and a little bit more, mm-hmm. a little bit more tough. Not, be more just kind of stop worrying about entitlements and all this stuff and just, you know, get back on the playing yeah. field play so help me to understand what are the this uh, fundamental values in your opinion or the fundamental cultural values that we all have uh, in us well i, I kind of i try to tie it to the archetypal relationships of parenting so i think the first number one value is is, is one that we associate with the maternal archetype now i said in the book you you can get maternal love from a mother or a father or a stranger, or even in some cases, another species. <laughs> but, but the point is unconditional love, I think is, 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 the first, is the first lever. And then the next lever up is what I would call discipline. And, and I would associate that more with the father figure, the parental discipline. And, and those two, I think that, and the discipline's about what is socially acceptable and what is not. Because initially you're, you're moved by desire and pleasure. As an infant, you, you, you care about desire and you care about pleasure. And then and you, you then you start interacting with your environment. And as a little kid, you're trying to manipulate your environment. And it, by the way, crying is, turns out to work pretty well for a while. And then after a while, it doesn't work as well. So, and that's part of what the, the discipline's about. And then I think there's a third level of value. So I think that's the second level of values. And and um, and by the way, I'm, I'm very concerned about our society right now abandoning what I thought were bedrock values of our society. But if you listen to the political discourse, it's very disappointing right now in terms of its ability to just maintain the values we always said we had. I mean, we're just not doing it. It's very embarrassing. But anyway, set that aside. Then there's a third set around what I would call siblings and then peers. And that's a third set of values around loyalty and, you know, and, and friendship and camaraderie and, and those. And then I think that you go to the next level out and they're institutional values, whether mm-hmm. it's from a church or a business or a government or, or, or a club or whatever you're, you're part of. So I think they, they come in layers, but I think that's the right way to layer them. I, I, and I think people get, people who take an ex, uh, uh, one of the up, outer layers and make it the primary layer, get in trouble. So they, if you try to, for example, build your identity around some social image of Barbie or you right. know Kim Kardashian or whatever mm-hmm. on social media, you're, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. Hmm. So that was actually my my next question. What role did globalism, internet, social media, you know, play in in shaking the stability of 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 these values? Can well, can we? I think you know, it's interesting. I think what it did do is it exposed it exposed people to a much much broader set of narratives. And, I, and by the way, I, I think I think this is why why I'm so interested in the power of narrative, because narrative is what is 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 driving these changes. And because social media and and it's not just social media, but it's, it's a, that's a good placeholder for what we're all talking about this mm-hmm. whole digital transformation of life has exposed us to many, much more powerful narrative inputs right. much more rapidly than, 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 than ever before. And then, and then having our friends on social media creates, they amplifies the power of that on our personality and, and on our feelings uh, so, so greatly. So that is the challenge 
for this generation, which is, and it's interesting, we, our educational system still talking about STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, baloney. We're way behind on narrative. And if we don't get better analytics of our narrative, we're not going to understand politics at all. We're not going to understand ourselves. So I think I, mean, I really do think it's important that we get back to understanding how to, narratives and then how to critique narratives to understand what's a credible narrative, what's a trustable narrative, what's mm-hmm. a dangerous narrative, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So narratives, the powerful narratives these days, they kind of mislead people for the values, right? So you, you perceive this narrative as the value, although it's not, right? It's just a narrative. Well, no, no, everything's careful. Don't say just a narrative because values are narrative. Everything's a narrative. Well, let me put it this way. Everything can be expressed through a narrative. So what, the, what, the, what you have to be able to do is to analyze the narrative to understand what it's doing. Then you can make a choice as to whether you support that narrative or, or you know, repudiate that narrative. But, but first you have to understand how the narrative is acting on you. And when we're young... We absorb narratives. I mean, we read stories to our kids. The kid becomes the character. The kid is, you know, Bluey or whoever's the latest, you know, cool, cool uh, thing on Sesame Street or whatever it is. And and so we need to understand it gets inside us. When we read a story, we let the story take over our mind. We, We watch a movie. It kind of takes us over. So it's very intimate and it's very impactful. And so afterwards, we need, this is what, literature classes are supposed to be about can you unravel and decode what just happened to you and then and then value it what however you think is appropriate to value it if the values don't come from a sacred text or divine creator right so where do this you know where do these values come from what i did in the book is they come from they come from the bottom of the staircase up Okay. So actually, I mean, I mean, you, you, physical life itself, I tried to make the case that in the, at the level of atoms and molecules, it's all about the Big Bang and entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. And we're just all the universe is trying to do is cool down. And but in cooling mm-hmm. down, it, it, organ, it t- gets tangled up in all these organizations. So there's a kind of a mechanical cause that gets us to frankly, gets you to bacteria. You can get to bacteria without having any values. You just you can just sort of figure out how, how you get there. With desire and, and, and the compulsion to live, and uh, you start saying, okay, now there's, there's, a, there's a value around what, what I call good tricks. In other mm-hmm. words, things that will help you survive are valuable and things that aren't, aren't. And, and, and that evolution plays with that, natural selection plays with that. But then when we got to, and then consciousness allows you to analyze those tricks. And this mm-hmm. is where AI comes in, because I think AI gets to consciousness in analyzing tricks. We're, we're still coming from the point of view of just, there's no religious values. This is just tactical right. tr- trickery. Okay. Then 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 we come to the to the nurturing one. And, and, and now all of a sudden, and to me that separates... Uh, animals, because I don't mm-hmm. think of reptiles uh, as having values. I may be mm-hmm. wrong here, but 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 from in my mind, I'm, it doesn't matter. The mind's too old. <laughs> uh, so, you know, reptiles that you can't trust a reptile, but you can yeah. trust a mammal. Not mm-hmm. all mammals are trustworthy, but but you know some mammals are trust are trustworthy. So so the, so the trust and the, and the vulnerability and mm-hmm. and so it, it came. If you look at our if you look at like Christian values, 
you know, the values of, of, of love and of love your neighbor as yourself, it's all coming out of that nurturing, those two, first two ones in particular, the nurturing mm-hmm. and the parental discipline uh, are, are coming there. And so the mm-hmm. narrative, I mean, by the way, prior to 300 years ago, there was no, you, you had to have a, a religious narrative because how right. could you possibly explain the order in the universe mm-hmm. if there wasn't an intelligent designer? It, it just didn't make any sense. Now there's this way of making sense of it, which is what, that, that is right. different. Can the two views of the secular view and the more like church-based view coexist together and, and co-transform? Or it's going to be the substitution of one to another? It's, it's a really good question. I, th- I think a lot of people feel that they can collaborate. And, and uh, first of all, I think when they argue with each other, they both they both they both sound kind of stupid. So, so I think that, that that doesn't seem like the right answer. Um, I guess the way I would do that personally, and I think this may be a little bit fudging, but to me, narr- to, to, this is why I come back to narrative. I have a narrative and a, and a practicing Catholic has a narrative. Mm-hmm. We can find all kinds of ways to collaborate with each other, even though our narratives are not right. identical, because we look for the common ground in both narratives. That's what I think. That, that, uh, and, and in this case, it would be values. We, what we would discover mm-hmm. is, although we locate the source of those values in different places, mm-hmm. we probably value the same values and therefore we can collaborate. What I like about one of the um, thoughts in, in your book is that the ethical values, the, the one that you propone is decentralized like a like a bitcoin that there's no one power of 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 the there's no one no one who would tell you hey this is the right way to live this is the way you go that and you've mentioned russia right they are a huge religious country and you would say that christianity is not is kind of connected to war when it's com- comfortable to them, right? Yeah. But you, you got the point, right? Then there should be war if you look at and you rely on, on, on those set of values that are provided, right? So that's why you, it's, it's justifiable to go ahead and kill. Although in a moral society, human ethic, that's not the way you're going to, because it's not going to lead to any constructive collaboration, right? Like killing is not the collaboration, it's elimination of one to another species, right? So the question is, how do you maintain values uh, in a in a society that is not homogenous in, in a way that there are both type of values and you kind of don't know which one is better or how to contradict one another right so so when we took that that domain of values we broke it up into four chunks two are more uh-huh. personal two are more societal so the personal values we said were going to be anchored either in kindness which was kind of more toward the nurturing part of values or fairness, which is more toward the discipline side, side of values. Then we said, well, okay, take that up to the level of society. At the level of society, morality is fine for a community that, that has a shared narrative. We're all going to subscribe to this narrative. We therefore can hold each other accountable to this morality. But justice is designed to work in a, in a heterogeneous mm-hmm. society where there are many communities with with incompatible values. So justice was the fourth one. And justice said, look, what you're trying to do is fairness at scale. And Mm -hmm. and the idea behind justice was, and there's a guy named John Rawls who wrote a book on the theory of justice, where he talks about if you were imagining yourself constructing a society and you didn't know whether you were going to be male or female, 
you know, white, black, or brown, or, you know, poor, rich, whatever, how would you construct the society in your, in your own self-interest? And, and he creates a kind of a theory of justice around that that I think makes some sense. But it's a secular theory of justice. And what it doesn't, it says the state has power to regulate, but it does not have a divine source of moral authority. And, and the problem with divine sources of moral authority is if they're beautiful and be beneficent, they're wonderful. But sooner or later, somebody corrupts that. And now you get a person who is using divine authority to send young people out with bombs attached to their body to blow other people up. And there's just no God under any narrative that would have supported that. But these, but these people are believing it and they're doing it. And, and so I was trying to say a top-down morality mm -hmm. that starts with perfection yeah. at the top of the universe, it's just a dangerous tool. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the top down, it means that creator is on the top, creator tells whatever you need to do, and then you go down to, and then these are the values. Although if it's go in a different direction from the bottom to the up, then there's no creator. So the values are inheritively within you. So right. you kind of intuitively know what to do in this or that scenario, which is good or bad to the entire society or to the group, right? Because yeah, you're nurtured. The problem with top down is, as long as it's just God and you, it's probably safe. But as soon as any human being puts themselves between God and you mm -hmm. and said, I am God's authority on you, you're in trouble. So let's say we have social values uh, that obviously help us to coexist. Um, how do we anchor those values? How do we stick to those values that we are not being misled by certain narratives that are out there? Well, every narrative leads or misleads. I mean, it's not like narrative is kind of like a bet on reality. It's a story that you it's a story that resonates with you that you feel is compelling enough that you are going to say, I want to live out the implications of that story in my life. Because uh, the claim I would make is that you can't live a life without a story. You have to have a story. And everybody's, in, in my view, everybody's entitled to choose their own story. And although obviously we're highly influenced by the stories that we grew up with and, and, the, and the ways we're socialized. But, but at some point as an adult, you have to take responsibility for the story that you're trying to live out. And you have to, first of all, become conscious of it. It's again, this is back to this issue of, this is why I think it's important to understand narrative and, and analytics. You need to, what is my story? Do I have a story? And, and you know, back to that thing about sales, if your story is about being in service to yourself, you're going to discover that the universe isn't very helpful. If you put your story in service to something other than yourself, anybody else who wants that same story to come true for that other thing will help you. So you start realizing that putting yourself in service to something outside of yourself is a pretty good narrative strategy. <laughs> and so, and so how, and then if you look at religions, religions almost all say, ask you to put yourself in service to something beyond yourself and, and for your own good, but beyond, beyond yourself. And so I think we start saying, where do values come from? They're going to come from narratives where the narratives come from. We get them from our culture largely. And then what we do as individuals is we sift through the narratives that we get exposed to. We are repelled by some narratives. We're deeply attracted by some narratives and we build our self, our identity around some small set of narratives that we are committed to. 
can organization like this exist at, at the bigger scale, at the scale? Because uh, I think that it's a it, it, it's definitely the right approach or the only right approach when we're talking about certain group, even, for example, like a small country. But when we talk about the world or even, let's say, you know, United States, right? When you have different states and everyone has different narrative, right? Although probably, I don't know, in their like 50s, 60s, 70s, that was a bit different and even maybe more homogenous in a way across the states. And now they're so kind of different, um, depending well, on. Even in the 50s and 60s, we had something called McCarthyism. Uh -huh. Which is not all that different from what we're going through right now. So, mm -hmm. so it, there is the, the the protection we have, for better or for worse, is justice, justice anchored in rule of law. And the and, and when we talked about the rule of law in the book, we talked about legal justice and social justice. Legal justice is literally you're not allowed to break the law. If you break the law, you you're subject to the sanctions of the law. With social justice, where we're having trouble in the United States. We, we're, we're having our issues with legal justice, to be sure, but social justice is a real problem. And the problem is, because, and now the narratives are very different, and and the amount of emotion that gets behind those narratives increases, and this, this is where social media and amplification is exacerbating the challenges even more uh, going forward. We have to get, we have to find a way to deal with that. And right now, we're not dealing very well with it. We're dealing, we're, we're, we, it hasn't blown up in our face yet, but our inability and our, our inability to be nimble with narrative is, is very concerning to me at, at any rate. What do you mean being nimble with a narrative? Well, in other words, that you can listen to a narrative and, and, and do two things. First of all, let the narrative tell its story. Even if you don't like the story, l listen to the narrative but then be able to criticize the narrative in ways that, that are, um, that expose what the narrative is, where the narrative is manipulating. And, and then, you know, do I want to be manipulated or not? But at least you need to understand you're being manipulated. Uh, I think people sort of in the back of their mind know they're getting manipulated. I don't think, sometimes they just like it and so they don't care. And, and I, that's dangerous. You, you, you have to understand. You really do have to. You own the responsibility of, of understanding your narrative and what what its power is over you. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back to the thought um, that uh, you briefly mentioned about 15 minutes ago about the sort of like political agenda shaping the values that you hear, right, that were very common, but now maybe they're different changing. Can you elaborate on, on that thought? What happens in, 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 a, in a democratic society, at least I, I really only know the U.S., so I mean, I'll just deal with the U.S. But, but, but what will what happen is um, you'll get a, what we call a demagogue, a, a person who tells a very powerful narrative. It's very extremist, but it's very emotionally appealing. So that was McCarthy in the 50s. It's Trump right now. Um, it was interesting. Obama had a much quieter narrative. And for people who were more intellectual and, frankly, probably better off economically, his narratives were very, very compelling. And so is his wife's Michelle's. Michelle's and their books are very compelling for people. Those narratives appeal a great deal to me personally. So that's, that's another set of narratives. 
but but what would, what's going on? And then, of course, Putin has a narrative. He has a narrative about Russian history and how we have a right to, you know, invade another country. And, and Xi Jinping has a narrative around, you know, the Communist Party and, and how important it is that we, you know, maintain lo- loyalty to the Marxist vision, et cetera, et cetera. So these are narratives. And, and, and any, a narrative is like a bet. It's like, I'm going to bet my life on this narrative. All I, all I think you have to ask is, and you're accountable for that bet. So if you make, if that narrative doesn't work out, you can't just blame other people. At some point, you have to blame yourself. We have to take a responsibility for your own narrative. I don't think our educational system makes a big enough emphasis on that point. And I think that, uh, you know, social media, and internet in general played huge role into uh, spreading out the narrative as fast as as possible quickly and and then adopting that narrative right because it's uh, when you have only one tv and then you watch tv after work from seven to nine right that's one thing right but then when you have your instagram and tiktok and facebook and every all of those open and all the notifications that you just get from on all of the sources you quickly you you adopt the narrative very quickly and the narrative becomes your value right and then that value translates into the way you make decisions and then if you cannot live off by those decisions after that then you have a problem right so um hmm. so the, so i would say at that moment when you make those decisions other people will respond because yeah, you make those decisions in a social context and the responses will either be reinforcing, in which case you'll make more of those decisions, or you'll get a negative result from the narrative. And then you have, a, then you have to decide what to do. And, and classically, you either say, I'm going to change my behavior, or change my narrative, or I'm going to exclude that person from my community of interest. So every, every narrative is, is reinforced by a community. And a community always consists of two groups, us, and not us or them, right? And and so one of the ways we maintain a narrative is we shape our community to be us and the narrative sharers and them, the narratives. And then the question is, how should we treat them? And what this is where I think justice is so important. Just because they're not part of our narrative doesn't mean that we should do violence to them, for example. And, and, and so, but that's where the demagogues can override justice very quickly. Oh, it's interesting when you mentioned demagogues in kind of politics, but also there's a lot of um, uh, economical demagogues. It's like when you look at, I'll give you an example, United States, uh, when you have war in Ukraine, where United States until today spent over $60 billion into aiding and, and helping both military and, and, uh, and, and other helps. And at the same time, U.S. companies are selling electronics to Russia that they're using, making penny on the dollar, but not stopping that. So in a way, like you're spending more taxpayer dollars to helping rather than the money in within your country are, are making. So stopping that would save the money that you're spending. So it's, it's, it's the paradox, right? Of, 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 of the decision that are, that are made. Yeah. Yeah. It's messy. It's definitely messy. 
in your book, you talk about goodness. And I think this in center of all everything is like goodness. So if it's good, and then this is the right moral, right value, right ethic, right? Because it's good. Um, I, I read uh, on, on, on your website, there is, uh, there is a, a book review uh, by one of your colleagues, by Bill Bartlett. Uh, mm-hmm. And I loved your comment on his review. And something that s- stuck up with me, he said that in your words, goodness is a sort of set of KPIs. That is like, if it's, if it's, it is good, it feels good, works good, then this is good. Well, and you, well, that was interesting. I actually think those are three dimensions. I think I would treat it like, you know, if, I don't know if in physics, I remember you used to do, try to do this three dimensional thing. So I think works good. And, and and feels good and is good are actually three independent variables. So works good is the, is the good tricks. That's Darwinian stuff. So, for example, a bomb that blows up a lot of people works good. It's a good bomb, right? So it's not a it's not a good thing, but it's but it works good. So, and, and I think you know part of being successful as an adult is you have to develop a set of good tricks that work in mm-hmm. your profession for your intentions. Right. Uh, the second one is feels good. So feels good is 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 and and that drives a whole lot of childish behavior, but it drives this homeostasis. We're all trying to get to a place of peace all the time, I and mean, our body's trying to do it all the time. Our minds are trying to do it all the time. Right. Uh, that feels good. It feel, feels feels center feel, feels good. It may not be good. I mean, if I if I if, if the way I get there is I you know drink a, a pint of uh, vodka every morning, that's probably not. Is good, but it feels good. Okay, and then yeah. is good for me was for the benefit of others or for the benefit of something beyond your, your yourself, and so so I of those dimensions, it was the third one, what I would call altruistic good, the good in service to others. That was the what I wanted to find the ethics because feels good. You don't need ethics for feels good, and you don't need yeah. ethics for works good, but you yeah. do need ethics for is good. There's a chapter in the book about being, and it's, it's, it's saying, look, if we are going to do, let's call that is good morally, let's call it mor- morally good, this is for the moment, we're going to be morally mm-hmm. good. So in that model, you need energy. And, and the, you, know, you say, well, why aren't people good more often? They're tired, they're cranky, they're, they're afraid, they're in pain, they're angry, they're all this stuff. And so you say, but I have to, so I, one of the things, that, one of the habits I've had in my life is something called transcendental meditation. I've been doing it for mm-hmm. over 50 years. So the thing that you experience there is there is a source of moral energy or spiritual energy. Which I, mm-hmm. I, the words are, in a secular world, it's kind of hard to know what words to use here. This is where religion is very helpful. But that we say, look, I have enough to give, I have enough energy to support moral action. And so mm-hmm. I think, I think finding that for yourself, whether you find it in, you know, some people find it in yoga or exercise. Some people find mm-hmm. it in prayer. Some people find it in meditation or contemplation. Some people find it walking in nature. Um, but I think you have to refill your moral tank of gasoline mm-hmm. so that you can then yeah. be good. Cause you can't be good if you don't have the energy to be good. What are the practices um, I engaged in for for mindfulness and meditation besides? Yeah, well, I mean, mindfulness is is the one that I think meditation and mindfulness to me are are synonymous. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically the idea behind those practices are if you get quiet inside, you'll release Mm -hmm. a lot of stress. As you release stress, 
then your natural sort of healthy joy in life can come out. And so that's that's a, that's the theory, and, and I, I endorse the theory because I think it, it's been my experience. But I think everybody has to have their own vehicle for for doing that. But in the absence of that, if you're living under stress, it's very hard to be moral. I mean, you do your best, but it's hard. You said you're doing meditation for 30 years now. Is it a daily? Uh, yeah, I still. Marie and I started transcendental meditation in 1968. So, yeah, 55. What is transcendental meditation? How do you do oh, it? There's a guy named the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And he mm-hmm. was, he did, the, uh, he taught the Beatles. He taught, you know, the, in the 60s, he was a popular guru, meditation teacher. And he formed an organization called Transcendental Meditation. It's still, if you look it up on the internet, they still, they still teach Transcendental Meditation. And it's just a very, it's a very simple form of meditation. You don't get better at it. It's not like yoga or, you know, there's mm-hmm. Aikido or Zen meditation or these things where you get, you really work hard to get better at it. Transcendental meditation, you, you, it, it's like sleeping. You don't, you just do it. It's, you don't get better at it, but it releases a lot of stress. And so mm-hmm. as a result, you feel more and more internally free. I don't know how to say it exactly, mm-hmm. but but it, it it does give you what I would call spiritual mm-hmm. energy, which you need if you're going to, Give yourself to something outside yourself. Can you walk me through how do you do it? Is it um, okay? Uh, sure. As the meditation, it's, so does the classic meditation? Yeah. So the classic, the, the, yeah, yeah. The mind, you know, the mindfulness meditation where you listen to your breathing and basically you right. say you're breathing. Okay. Yeah. So the only difference between that and transcendent is in transcendental meditation. Instead of your breathing, they give you a mantra, which is a mm-hmm. sound. It's, it's a Sanskrit mm-hmm. word. It doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. at least not to me. But you, but you learn to just. Do, use the sound and you let the sound get quieter and quieter mm-hmm. and quieter. Mm-hmm. And then after a few minutes or some amount of time, you're thinking, oh, I forgot to turn off the oven or, you know, oh, I've got a, oh, I've got a podcast with Michael here in a moment. You know, something, some thought comes up. Right. Thoughts are how you release stress. So you let the, mm-hmm. the thoughts just go and go. It's just like, it's like mindfulness. And then when you realize, oh, I'm not back, then you go back to the mantra. So it's going, mm-hmm. it's just going in and out, in and out, mm-hmm. in and out. And uh, it's very, it's very relaxing. It's also about breathing, right? Because very often when we are stressed out, we don't breathe enough. We have a, a good posture. We're not breathing. We're tight in inside. We don't feel the body. So with that meditation, when you do the breathing and you, you know, you kind of get more air in your body and you get on the posture, then it's just help. Well, in fact, in fact, there's a whole other form of meditation called pranayama, which is all about breathing. And they mm-hmm. use, you do breathe through your nose in different ways and whatever. And then there's yoga, which... It's a lot about breath, but it's also about posture. I think yeah. any of these disciplines are designed to help you get recentered. That you, this, we carry this these stressful memories around in our head, and they mm-hmm. tend to make us off center and kind of, and, and so that we, when you're when you're under stress and you come into a situation, it's just very hard to be your best self. You know, it's possible, but it's hard. The more less stress you have, the better chance you have of being your best self. I have a quote from um, from one of your articles uh, specifically about that. So you said that self-realization is not selfish, 
ego realization is selfish. This is where mindfulness and meditation come in. These practices allow consciousness to experience self as connected to a source of spiritual connection and refreshment, thereby giving the ego the energy and centeredness it needs to act ethically under challenging conditions. You mentioned clients. Um, I think that people that wanted to stick around for the conversation about values and more philosophical matters can either stay on or and l l listen to some of that business talk or uh, they can pause and do something else. But I, having you on, I wanted to talk uh, about the the clients that you currently work with, because this is one of the you know leading tech companies of the world that are shaping our society right now. So talking about AI innovation in general, and then your work with uh, you know these most advanced companies like Intel, Salesforce, Cisco, SAP, they all undergo a certain digital transformation. And I was wondering how do values and social norms and ethics and morals affect this transformation that they're going at. You know, it's so interesting because this is where the CEO can make such a, the CEO is kind of the chief storyteller for the corporation. And each of those four corporations has a different CEO with a different style. Uh, and so I would say the one that is most susceptible to narrative right now is Salesforce, because I think Mark Benioff has a very, very powerful charismatic way of talking about narrative. I can remember uh, uh, in prior era, um, well, I think Bill Gates had a sense of narrative. If you think about the, the people that, that, and Jeff, Be Jeff Bezos had more of a system. The narrative was more internal. It was not as external as, as, as some of the other ones are. But um, I do think that, that um, particularly for the current generation of employees, they want to participate in a narrative that gives validity to their work. And I think, you know, we, we teach in business school how to, we teach good tricks, right? <laughs> As you said, yeah. it, is, it works good. And, and, yeah. and, we, and, we, and we're pretty, okay, it feels good. We yeah. may be a little weak on is good. <laughs> but 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 I think, I think increasingly, um, and one of the things you realize as you look at the political structures in the world, mm -hmm. private enterprise has a lot more freedom in the short term Public enterprise scales. I mean, ultimately, you, you can't scale anything to society without public, the public sector. But to innovate, it's mm -hmm. much easier to innovate in the private sector. And right. the notion that of saying, uh, and then you have the social entrepreneur who's saying, mm -hmm. I want to be an entrepreneur, but I'm, I'm not doing the get rich quick thing. I want to save the planet. Okay, now a bunch of those are just too idealistic to be practical. But then you say, but then there's another group of people saying, yeah, but it's a, it's a good idea. Here's how we could maybe do something mm -hmm. more. And when I, I'm right now, as you point out, working with global corporations, global corporations have a lot of power uh, yeah. and, and they can do things. And so, um, you know, it's, it's that's I'm very encouraged by that. So you mentioned last time that a lot of them going um, um going through a certain reinventing themselves, uh, rethinking who they are. Is this 
rethinking process is more about their offering and their products and their position on the market, or it's also rethinking in terms of what values we stand for and who we are in our core and how do we want or how can we impact the world? And then what are the best companies that actually are doing that? And then what are the players or what are the, the teams that you think you can, they can do much better work in, in this? I think, I think most companies are trying to do the former, which is, look, we, we, have been, we became powerful because we embraced a new technology and we helped take it to scale. It, we, this technology is not going away. You know, Cisco routers, SAP uh, ERP systems, they're going to be with us for decades to come, but there's new stuff. And, and the challenge that the big companies have is particularly under the works good uh, part of goodness is I, they have to take money out of their profitable businesses and put them into the unprofitable businesses to catch the next wave. And the way the capitalist and the uh, economy works, investors often discourage that behavior. And so it creates a bunch of counter incentives. And so the, the, the last book called Zone to Win was about setting up a management system to deal with that problem and, and to deal with it authentically. The, the problem doesn't go away, but we weren't dealing with it authentically. And now I think people are able to deal with it more authentically. So I, th- and, and by the way, the goodness for society is those companies create jobs. They, they, they support other industries to jobs in other industries, making them more productive. If you're more productive, there's more free. There's, that means there's more excess capital to spend on social good. So, you know, you need to make oh, money 100%. in order to spend money. So it's, it's, that's all good. Okay. Having said that, there is also a trend. And it's interesting what's going on in the U.S. right now. There's a backlash against it where they mm-hmm. use this word woke. And, and the word woke is intended to mean a business which has become too idealistic, mm-hmm. too oriented toward, you know, social uh, justice and, yeah. and, and not, you know, not making enough yeah. money or not being hard, yeah. hard-nosed enough. Uh, having said that, though, I mean, I would say that the, the tech businesses are probably the ones that have the most freedom and are having currently the most impact at this social good and profitable at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the social, the, particularly software businesses, uh, because they, they're very economically, they're very, uh, they have very good margins. I mean, the margin yes. models in software is so good. Yeah. So as a result, you can do, there's a lot of excess returns, which you can then use constructively right. or not, depending on what kind what you're trying to yeah. do. But that was... Before 2023, I think, right? So before this, by the way, um, are we in a recession or it's an economical decline? <laughs> I, 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 think we, I think we're still in kind of, I think we're coming out. Look, the pandemic was, was bizarre, uh, as, we, as we all know. It, it, it upset the global supply chain. So just understand that prior to 2020, we were trying to put every manufacturing job we could in China. Or, or someplace in the Far East. So now what the pandemic said is that's not as good an idea as you thought it was. So, so the reason the economy is kind of in a weird place right now, it takes five years to change that. You can't, you can't like do it like that. It's getting better. 
Um, I think I think the world is going to be a little less global. I'm, we got we, we got very excited about globalization when the Berlin Wall came down in the early '90s. I think everybody was a capitalist thought. See, we were right. It's all it's all everything we said was true, and, and we found out well that isn't true either. So 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 you know how how to deal with it. But I think I think it's going to be. It'll get, I, assuming we can contain the the, uh, the 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 war issues, which are very very concerning, and you look at Taiwan as potentially the next one, so there's all this stuff going on. But if we can contain that, I think things will get. I think this will be a pretty good decade. I think it'll just get better and better. I think quietly. While I still have you for a few minutes, I wanted to tap into your VC um, experience. Um, so. I have a feeling that, um, the, or I have feeling and the data that um, the the buyers' behaviors in in software or in B two B software had changed um, over the last year and a half. So people realize that they don't want to spend that much SaaS budget and have all those twenty five tools and pay for those tools two hundred dollars per seat, whatever. So you can actually the the cost of developing a software became so cheap that you don't need to to pay them those margins because every time you buy for software, you can get a deal at 50% off, 75% off. So the, the, the question is like, why do I need to have those off at the first place if the cost of the software can be 20 bucks or something, right? So, uh, so what, what's happening right now is people start cutting off those budgets, optimizing. And then I start, I, I start sort of like, and I start noticing that people more talk about uh, what ROI I can get from it or what cost for it. So they start, so these are the buyers. Now, I know that for the last like one year, the VCs haven't been investing a lot and there is a certain delayed interest in the market. So I was talking to a friend of mine and he said that Michael, a lot of guys in Silicon Valley that I talked to say that we already on a rise. So the next two years will be one of the best years in tech just because there is a delayed interest. You know, there's a lot of deals that will be made very soon and people are hungry to invest and etc. So. My concern is that are we back to the times that I, as the entrepreneur who is bootstrapping my business and all of the business that I'm in, even the software, are we at the times where people start raising um, investment at a very high valuation and then sending six, seven figure salaries to all everyone and then we are back on the roll when you know there's like smoothie machines, et cetera? Or do you think we are in the place where investors are different, the, the rules of making money are different. It's, it's more a, a business type rather than venture type uh, collaboration. And that's the first part of the question. And the second one, can you confirm my friend's uh, thoughts about, yes, we're in a good place right now, things are gonna start happening because you are inside the, the, yeah. the, the, the space. Uh, the, the first question I wanna ask is, where's the trapped value in the economic system today, in any industry, in anything. So the idea is in any system, there's always a bottleneck. There's always a place where things get trapped. So where, first of all, where's the bottleneck now? Because it used to be here and then it's, it, it moves. Right. When you go to the bottleneck, if you can find next generation technology that can break open that trap value, it will create a venture return. That's where venture returns come from. So, so your first thing is don't think about the technology. Think about you want to think about the intersection between trapped value and mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. Where where is that happening? Be able to get private capital to go into that is not a problem. There's still a lot of capital on the sidelines. So people mm -hmm. are 
people, there is capital out there that, that 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 we've created a surplus that that's still there. But you, you, but you have to sort of do that. And from the customer's point of view, what, you, what you're noticing with the customer and the business the business buyer is, by and large, they're still buying under established paradigms. So that starts optimizing more and more. They start uh-huh. saying, I want to consolidate around platforms. I don't want 25 vendors. I want four. Yeah. So, you know, that plays to the strength of the SAPs and the Cisco's and the Intel's mm-hmm. and the sales forces because, you know, and the point product people have yeah. to join a, it's a little bit like, it's a little like being a satellite nation, right? Like being in Eastern Europe as opposed to the Soviet Union, you sort of figure yeah. out well, what's my place. Uh, so that kind of, but people want to buy outcomes and in, 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 in that situation, the outcome is predictable. So now they're saying, okay, I want, I want a more and more cheaper, faster, better of the same outcome. Mm-hmm. Venture's about a new outcome. Venture's mm-hmm. about something, an impossible outcome that is just becoming possible. And right. so I think you want to separate the venture thing from the, from the more traditional one. Got it. So the venture um, capital will be focused on the, the break in technology innovation like AI in the next. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, so there's a, 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 the, um, uh, one of the things that people are, are pointing out is that as we get more and more technology established, mm. it, is, it is less and less disruptive to introduce the next big thing. Yeah. And so what happens, what that's doing to the technology adoption life cycle is we have this thing called the chasm, which was this separation between mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. old tech and the new tech. It's, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's, it's able to cross it faster or, or in yeah. fact, fewer. Th- you can even start things on the other side. You don't, you don't have yeah. to start everything with a disruption. So that's having a big, a big impact as well. And then the, the, the second part of the question was um, for the people, their startup founders that are building their AI products, um, you can... Y- you will con- you confirm that deals going to start happening more and more and more. As you said there's a, uh, a surplus of 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 money, private money available, and the deals m- must have happened very soon, right? Well, because but the thing the thing that you have to do as an entrepreneur is so now that the the, the large language models, there'll be some number of large language models, and that's where. I mean, the people that run the large language models, which will probably be Amazon and Google and, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe a Salesforce, but there'll be a handful. But everybody else is going to leverage those models, right? So right. now uh, that's not going to create as big a venture return because, you know, you don't control the, the trap value maybe largely in the large language module, not in your little application. Right. But, right. but you, if you still stay with the thing of, look, I want to... I'm still going after trap value. I'm just mm-hmm. going to do it in the transportation industry or I'm going to mm-hmm. do it in retail. But you have to find I, I, the thing I would say and the, the thing that's going to attract the venture capitalist is if is how how good a narrative back to narrative. And by the mm-hmm. way, venture capital is all about narratives. Of course. It's, nobody believes the yeah. spreadsheets. It's mm-hmm. all about stories. So mm-hmm. the narrative of where does the new technology intersect the trap value and why mm-hmm. you why are you ideally positioned for that narrative for that trap value and that technology to win the game and that then that's the venture investment i think it's a great way to close up thank you so much for taking the time and sitting out with me and um, and sharing your wisdom i would say and uh, mm-hmm. it was i had a lot of fun preparing for this and having you on and, and chatting 